Welcome to My Life, Chassidus Applied, episode 357. This will be a special Chav Ches Sivan 80th anniversary edition, honoring 80 years from when the Rebbe and the Rebbetson arrived miraculously to the United States of America from Europe, Nazi-ravaged Europe. This program is dedicated in honor of the work you do helping Anash, Alevatslach. So, as mentioned, Chav Chesivan is this week, 80 years ago, Tavshin Aleph, 1941, the Rebbe and the Rebbe's arrived to America. So, we'll begin addressing that. What is the significance of that day? I will also add that 30 years ago, the 50th anniversary of the 28th of Sivan, I had the merit and the schus to suggest and then prepare and publish a Kavitz Chavches Sivan, a booklet, Chavches Sivan, which includes the story of the Rebbe's and the Rebbe's being saved from Europe and coming to America, plus a collection of different talks and memoriam discourses the Rebbe delivered in connection with Chavches Sivan. So the Rebbe actually dated that Kavitz Erev Chavches Sivan, which is interesting. Erev, you usually use for Erev of a holiday. But here the Rebbe said Erev Chavches Sivan, essentially indicating that Chavches Sivan is a form of a holiday. So of course the obvious question is why? What's so significant? Obviously when two Jews are saved from... Uh, from uh, Sakana, from danger, it's a special day, but it seems to be a private affair of their own. It's true that the Rebbe, the, the Rebbeson was the daughter of the Friedrich Rebbe, the Rebbe was the son-in-law, and then nine years later, the Rebbe would become the seventh generation, the seventh Rebbe of Chabad. So in that sense, it's not just an individual, but still, what's the significance of coming to America and remembering it in that fashion? So when you look in the introduction to that Kovitz, and I should add that the biggest chus was that the Rebbe then gave out that kavitz to every man, woman, and child. The Rebbe delivered with a dollar that night of Chavches Sivan 30 years ago, which means the 50th anniversary. So when you look there, you'll see in the introduction there that there are two aspects to Chavches Sivan. One is the actual Hatzalah, which means the saving of the Rebbe and the Rebbetson. And it wasn't a simple matter because they were in uh, Nazi-occupied France and they had to get out of there through Portugal, and they finally got onto a ship, and it was not easy. Many people, unfortunately, could not escape. So that was one part of it. The second part that began, in the words of the Rebbe, Tnufa Chadasha, a new stage, a new period in the spreading of Yiddishkeit, Chassidus, and Hafasa Samayonis Chutzah, because when the Rebbe arrived in America, the Friedrich Rebbe established and appointed him to be the head of the three main organizations, Merkus Lenyoni Chinuch, the educational arm of Chabad, Machin Yisrael, the social arm, Kohos, the publishing arm, and the Rebbe became, for the first time, active, not behind the scenes, but in a very prominent way, of these organizations, which would really be the pillars of how the Friedrich Rebbe implemented his plans and his strategies. And the Rebbe, in a sense, was, was a, if you want to call him a publisher, he was a form of a publisher, prepared and uh, initiated many different publications. And all that began 
essentially when the Rebbe arrived to America on the 28th of Sivan, 80 years ago. But what is the significance? And when you look in the talks of the Rebbe about Chavches Sivan, and you see an emphasis on one key point, and that is the arrival to the Chotzi Kader Atachten. What in simple English that means, to the lower hemisphere. So what the, what the secular world calls the new world. Basically, the population, the major civilizations of the Western world, of the, or generally the world, was in the, the upper hemisphere. And here we're talking about the upper hemisphere, the eastern hemisphere, which was Europe, Asia, Africa. Those were the main bulk that was... There were people living in the United States, in Americas in general, North and South America, but it was a different civilization unknown to the Western world. In the, the, when Columbus came to America and the other explorers, and America began to be populated by the white population of the Western world, that was called the New World. So, so essentially, even historically speaking, it was not really populated by the other part of the civilization. We don't want to dismiss those, the natives that lived here, and it's a whole other, uh, it's a whole other discussion what exactly happened to them and how they were treated and mistreated. But regardless, Chatzikadar Atachten represented this new world. But, but the new world was not just a new opportunities. When Spain and Portugal began to send their explorers, they were looking for wealth, they were looking for resources, they were looking for land. They didn't even know what they were looking for. Who knows what they discovered. But the bottom line is that that's what their goal was. But there's always a deeper story and a deeper narrative. So when you understand what Chatzikadra Tachten is, we can understand then with the significance both of Tess Oders, Shani, when the Friedrich Rebbe arrived in 1940, a year and a half earlier than the Rebbe, and the Rebbe's arrival in 1941. So there's an interesting letter, a letter that is printed in the his office in the editions of Sefer Amorim Tavshen Ches, 1948, where it's written, it's a letter, says from the Friedrich Rebbe, to one of his sons-in-law. We know today it's the Rebbe. And the Rebbe asks a question. The Alter Rebbe says in a discourse that Matan Teda did not happen in the Chasikadra Tachn, in the lower hemisphere. It only happened in the upper hemisphere, where Israel is. Now, actually, Matan Teda didn't happen in Israel, it happened in the Sinai, uh, Sinai Desert, in Midbar Sinai, and Har Sinai, but in that hemisphere. So the question is, what does that mean? We know the Matan Teda was a monumental global event that affected the entire universe. Birds didn't chirp, everything became silent. Was it only half the world that it affected? How could you say that? And the Friedrich Rebbe answers that the Alter Rebbe means begoli, in a revealed way. Just for example, when you say that the neshama, which is the soul, manifests itself in the human body. Now, it manifests it from head to toe. But you say in the moyach, in the mind, or especially in the head, you have far more of the faculties, and far more, you can say it's soul power, than in other parts of the body. The life force is equal from head to toe. But the head, there's no question, the mind itself, the power of vision, the power of hearing, all the central nervous system. So Chassidus explains, that means that the neshaman resides there because it's more begoli, it's more of a vessel and a container that in a revealed way is appropriate for the soul to manifest itself through the mind, and through the mind, it extends to the rest of the body. Just as we say about the heart. 
Blood needs to flow and circulate all over, every part of the body. But there's one place where the blood resides, and that's the source, that's the heart. So in the same way, when Matan Teh, when you say Eretz Yisrael, is the holiest land on earth, from there it extends to the rest of the world. Like Rosh Hashanah is the head of the year. A head is not just the beginning, it's also the central nervous system. It controls all the days of the year. So Matan Teh, its main place where it resided in a revealed way was in the upper hemisphere which was more of a keli for it. So Chatzikadra Tachna essentially is what Altareb is saying, it's far more concealed, which means it's harder to essentially transform the lower hemisphere because the divine energy that was released on Ma'antele is, is more concealed there. Not because it's more distant. The reason it's more distant is because spiritually it's more distant. So when the Friedrich Rebbe made the statement, America is nicht anders, America is not different. He didn't say the same thing when he came to Riga, that Riga is not different, that Poland is not different, or Latvia is not different. Because even though that was also a journey, and part of the birur, which means the refinement, that the Rabbeim, once they left Lubavitch and then went to Rostov, and from Rostov to Leningrad, as cited in the introduction to the Kavitz Chavchah that Esser Golius, there were 10 exiles from Lubavitch all the way to America, but America constituted a new qualitative paradigm shift. Coming to a world, America was seen as Andish, as different. It's the new world. Here, the rules from the past don't exist. Many people felt that once you come here, you'll have the comforts, but what will be compromised will be your Judaism. It was known when Jews began to come to America. Well, there were the different uh, immigrations, but especially in the early 20th century, they were escaping the pogroms, many, in Eastern Europe and Russia. But... So parents send their children, but it was like they felt that certain sadness that they'd go to America and be saved, but their, their spiritual life would be compromised. And indeed, many people felt, without going into all the details, that they couldn't keep Shabbos. Now, work in America, you have to make money. A land of prosperity. A land that consumes its inhabitants, in the words of yesterday's Parsha, Shlach. So the bottom line is that America was seen as different. And when the Friedrich Rebbe says, no, we're going to show it's not different, we're going to build institutions here. We're going to turn it into a America as a center of Teda, exactly as it was in the old world, in the upper hemisphere, in the hemisphere where Matan Teda had a more revealed impact. So once you understand this, then Chatzikadratachtan takes on a whole new significance. It's not just another country to come to. It signifies a far more materialistic world, a far more apathetic world, and all, for all the benefits and blessings that the United States of America, and in general this hemisphere has provided, including Jews, it also has its deep challenges. Quite a number of places, Chassidus brings, the Rebbe emphasizes, where it says, Mashiach comes, there will be the sounding of the, blasting and the sounding of the great Shefer. And what will it cause? It will gather, it will call and, and um, reach and gather all the exiles, those that, are, that were the Dachim pushed aside in Mitzrayim and those that were lost in Asher. So why is the expression here it's lost and here it's pushed aside? Because there's two types of Goliaths. There's a Goliath called Mitzrayim from the word Mitzrayim constraints. For many, many years, this was our Goliath of Jews living under oppression and under... Uh, all types of affliction, discrimination, 
starting in Mitzrayim itself, living in a state of Mitzrayim, poverty, oppression, and so on. As a result, that's, that's a, so they're nedochim, they're pushed aside, they're downtrodden. But then there's a much worse goal. Even get lost, Asher, from an Aleph, prosperity, plenty. And there, the goal is the other way around. It causes apathy, indifference, because everything is nice, you're comfortable. So comfort is a great blessing, but it can cause that you get lost in it. And once you get lost, it's very difficult to wake somebody up when they're lost in that sense. But the talk of the Shefer Godel, the great Shefer, will awake them all up. But that's the distinction. And that's more the goals that we're in these days, once we came to this world. So on one hand, many blessings. On the other hand, many more challenges. And for a different sight, more the enemies, more within. So the coming to America was, in a sense, the last birur. You look at the sikh of Ayeshev Tav Shinun Beis, and the Rebbe explains why the Alta Rebbe was opposed to France winning the war between France and Russia. Because even though things would be more comfortable and more free, but spiritually the Jews would be compromised. Whereas Russia winning the war, the Tsar, it would be more difficult materially, but spiritually things would be better. And then the Rebbe says, that was then. But seven generations later, things have changed. Now we can transform even the freedoms and the comforts of the Western world, though in Napoleon's eyes it would be more godless, but the fact is now we can transform it because we have more power and also the world is more refined, in addition to the fact that the Western world is not all godless. The United States is built on the principles of the seven Noahide laws, God, and so on. So essentially the coming to America, you talk about a birr, momata refining the world from below. From above, yes, if Ilu Zachinu, it had we merited, when they lived in the upper hemisphere, meaning the hemisphere where Israel is, then they could have achieved the whole biru, the refinement of the world, and bring the Geula. And what would have been with the sparks in, in, in this part of the world, in the lower hemisphere, meaning would have been elevated, like a flame that draws sparks, instead of you going to reach the sparks. As the Alter Rebbe explains, in even broader terms, that if Adam and Chava, Adam and Eve, had not eaten from the tree of knowledge, that's what would have happened. They would have been in Gan Eden, in the Garden of Eden, in paradise, and drawn all the sparks from all over the world. But since it didn't happen, now you have to go find those sparks. And that's in stages. First, it's the next generation after Adam and Chava that didn't go all over the world, went a little further out, further out, further out, further out. Which explains when it says, that's, that God did a, did a charity that he separated, the Jewish people, he separated, he scattered them all over the world. Why is that it's Dokkah? That's Golos, Galina Matzenu, it's displacement. Because it has a deeper Zdoka, because now we can go and find those sparks and elevate them from the bottom up. And when the elevation comes from the bottom up, the Mittler Rebbe explains in the Maimorim in, in Shari Eda, then the elevation is far more internal. When it's from the top down, it's also an elevation, but it's like the top, you haven't gone into the nitty gritty of it. When it's Bepinimius, when you want it to be internal, you have to go find those sparks. So of course we would have loved that the Geula would have come much earlier. But Chatzikadra Tachten represents, now we're going to pick up the building, as the example Chassidus gives. You pick it up from the bottom, and the whole building is raised. So Chav Chassivin, in that sense, 80 years, signifies the new period of new challenges, but also new strengths. And the ability to finish the process of bringing the Geula 
by elevating every aspect of existence, as the Rebbe explains in Vayesh of Tavshin and Beit. That's what he says. When people, he said, people ask, why now closer to the Gul? He says, because now we're everywhere in the world. So Jews are everywhere. This doesn't mean we refine every detail, but it means, like he says in Tanya, that when you elevate, when you brought the Mincha Selis, which was a, made of, veget, made of, 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 of plant, Mincha Selis was uh, from flour, from grain, that that elevated the whole Min HaTzemeach. So even though you don't elevate every flower and every plant on earth, but when they brought that carbon, it elevated everything on the world. So basically now we are everywhere in the world, meaning the Jewish people, and basically have the capacity and the ability to refine every aspect from the bottom up. In some places the Rebbe actually refers to Australia and South Africa as Takhtan Shebetachtan. That's another discussion. But point being is that this is the challenge. I saw once a Yechidus that the Rebbe, someone wrote down in Tavshah Chavdala, 1964, in the summer. And the Rebbe says that the Jews have gone through every type of Golos, every Nisoyen, every test and every type of exile and displacement. The exile and displacement, the Nisoyen of Aeneas, poverty, of oppression, sexual challenges the Rebbe brings. He says, now we have a new challenge. And this is the last one, the challenge of freedom, Freiheit. And the Rebbe says, the Ebershter says, here, I'm giving you freedom. Let's see if you still, if you want Mashiach. To want Mashiach when you're oppressed and you're, and you're desperate is one thing. But when you're free, and it's Asher, then the Rebbe continues, Geula will not come, he says, from Russia and Morocco. It'll come from America and Australia, because that's where there's freedom. And unfortunately, it's being used for the opposite. So the Golos of America is very different. So even though 1941 was still in the middle of the horrible wars going on, and of course the Ritzichis, the terrible, inhumane genocide of the Jewish people, but America was a refuge, was a haven. And nine years later, when the Rebbe would assume leadership, which would already be after World War II, was the rebuilding and the renaissance of the Jewish people. But the Rebbe faced a new challenge that never were never faced before. From the Friedrich Rebbe back to the Alter Rebbe, and going all the way back, you rarely have a period of, of long peace among the calm by the Jewish people. Yes, there was the golden age of Jewry in Spain. There was the times in Europe it was peaceful, but these are all lulls. They were all temporary. In America now, we have new opportunity, and the Rebbe was the first that had not had to fight with Nazis, I'm talking about 1959, or communists, or the Bolsheviks, or the Yevsekzia or the pogroms that the Friedrich Rebbe, and the Rebbe Rashab, the Rebbe Marash, and before that the Tzemach Tzedek, and the Mittler Rebbe, and the Alter Rebbe, had to deal with oppression, real oppression. The Dochen Beretz Mitzrayim. The Rebbe's entire Nisias has been in an age of freedom, and comforts, and prosperity. Of course we have individual challenges, but collectively, we have no concern about sending our children to any school, because someone's going to arrest us. We can fabring, we can talk, we can learn and teach, you can be as committed as a Jew as you wish. There's no outside enemy. Yes, there are anti-Semites and so on, but on an institutional level, on a collective level, we have the freedoms unprecedented in history. But the Rebbe had a new enemy. What was the enemy? Apathy. Indifference. Complacency. Gleichgiltigkeit in Yiddish. Adishut in Hebrew. And that's a very different enemy. That's the Evdim Be'eretz Asher. Once you have that, and look in history. When did assimilation begin, Jewish assimilation? 
as Jews were becoming more comfortable, as Jews were becoming freer from the ghetto and from the discriminations of the past. Quite ironic. So that was the challenge. So Chatzikadar Atakhtan personifies all these challenges and many more. I'm speaking general, general terms. So coming to Chatzikadar Atakhtan, coming 80 years ago to America, and for the Friedrich Rebbe a year and a half earlier, represented a new stage, a new paradigm. One that would have its unique challenges, but one that would also lead into the Deir Ashvi, the seventh generation, the Tnufa Chadosha, that began 1941, but then blossomed into the seventh generation when the Rebbe assumed leadership. After the Stalkos of the Friedrich Rebbe, that we're now going to conquer and transform even the comfortable new world of the lower hemisphere. As it is with all gifts, like technology and others, they're great gifts, great opportunities, but they can also lead to great damage and great destruction. Look, look around. Technology is neutral. Use it correctly. You can change the world. You can reach billions of people with the press of a button. You create unbelievable unity and love. Used the wrong way, it could also create great psychological and emotional problems, as we see. So that is the significance of the eight, of 80 years of Chavchezim. We're honoring that day because we continue this job, which means in simple and practical terms, applying this to our lives, we have to now redouble and retriple and recommit to this mission of finishing the job the Rebbe gave us, that the Rebbe led, is leading us through. 30 years ago, the Rebbe said, do everything you can to finish this job that began 80 years ago, 81 years ago, really began much earlier, but in this part of the world. So though there were chassidim here before Tovshin Aleph and Tovshin, before 1940-41, but the Rebbe coming here, making this the center of Chabad, not a little shtetl in Lubavitch, where there were very little distractions, but now in New York, in the center of the Western world, the capital of the world, and turn that into a place of Teirah, chassidus, and Yiddishkeit. So this is what we have to ask ourselves on Chav Chesivin and every day before and after. What am I doing in that direction? What more can I do? And take resolutions and bring them into action in both in learning what it is, learning the Torah of it, bring it into Aveda and Davening and in our emotional connection and ultimately in actions. In actions, literally, what are you doing to spread Chesidus more? What are you doing to bring Mashiach and the Geula closer? Another question that was asked in this context is how did the Rebbe mark this day 30 years ago? So I already mentioned it, that the Rebbe gave out the Kevis Chav Chesivin. It's a tremendous thing, the Rebbe giving it out. And in it, it's not just, it wasn't just a man, but it also talks about the Rebbe's personal and the Rebbe's in Hatzalah, being saved. It also has there, interestingly, we worked very hard on this. I was trying to recon- reconstruct the talk the Rebbe gave based Tammuz a few days after he arrived, he fabrenged six hours, upstairs in 770, and he spoke, according to those that were there, according to Pshat, Remez, Dusad, Arbot, Sichim, Lahedes, the four people who have to make birches hagoimel, and they have to thank, and one of them is, when you're saved from a dangerous situation, and you've traveled overseas, so the Rebbe spoke about that, Pshat, Remez, Dusad, I, I worked very hard to try to reconstruct it, we couldn't really do a good, a complete job, we wrote up whatever we were able to gather, and I wrote to the Rebbe that maybe the Rebbe would be mezakos, merit us with giving some of the nekudas. I thought maybe the Rebbe may have a reshima 
that he may have written of the things he said then. And the Rebbe wrote, Enazman Gromaklal. I don't have at all time for this. But at least I asked. Later, in the Rishimas came out from the Rebbe, they, there is a Rishima that you could say maybe was what the Rebbe did say during that uh, Fabrengen. But regardless, the Rebbe gave out the Kavis that night. It was a very awesome scene, historic. So honoring, you see, the Rebbe marked the 50th year, so now we're in the 80th year. So we have our work to be done. We have work to be done. So that is a brief, well, not completely brief, but somewhat uh, overview of Chav uh, Chesivan. I hope I did justice to, to some extent, especially explaining its significance. We're also in the Parsha of Kairach. Now, interesting to note, next week we will have a special Gimel Tamas edition, because Gimel Tamas is Sunday. But, so, but interesting that Kairach, Gimel Tamas actually happened with Tzoyi Shabbos Parsha Kairach. It was Saturday night. And Yom Rishon of Parsha Chukas. So I pointed out back then, and I've said it a number of times, maybe others have as well, that Kairach, of course, was a challenge to the very concept of a Rebbe. Kairach said, Why are you and Moshe and Aaron lifting yourself up? The entire community are holy. So why are you lifting yourself up as leaders? Essentially, it was a challenge to what do we need a Rebbe? So it's interesting, the Mitzray Shabbos of Kairach, Gimel Tammuz, asks us that question. Why do we need a Rebbe? And many people ask that question today, 27 years since Gimel Tammuz. Now, of course, we're talking about Chav Chesivin, but it's connected because Chav Chesivin is when the Rebbe came to America with the Rebbetzin, and nine years later assumed leadership. So the Kairach question is very relevant to our time. Chukas, we'll talk about this next week, but I'll just, since I already mentioned it, Chukas talks about the Tikkun, the Tara, the purification from what Tumas Mes. And there's a disconnect between soul and body. So is this not relevant to Gimel Tamas? It's like uncannily relevant. So let's address some of those questions. So what did Kedach say? Why do we need it? We're all, the whole nation is holy. And it's true. You shall be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Every Jew is in. Every one of us says every morning, the Shama that you've given me is pure. In the words of Tanya. Part of God, godliness. So why talk is there leadership? And where do you find an answer to this question? Yes, it's true, God sends a sign that Aaron is the priest and is the, meant to be the high priest, but where do you find a direct answer to this question? And it seems like it's an obvious question. So this can be answered in a number of ways, but one of them is, what do we see later in the Parsha? That after Kedach and his people are punished for their rebellion, and defying the people God chose, you see that God says, we will show a sign. And he asked everybody to put rods, place rods, and we'll see who God chooses. And the rod of, So the next morning they came and they saw that Aaron's rod blossomed with almonds. So why is that a sign? Blossoming a rod and then almonds? So in answering one question, we'll answer the other question.
The Alter Rebbe has a beautiful Maimon Lakut on this topic, asking this question, what does almonds have to do with uh, a coin? So he explains that the role of a coin as a leader is not to replace, God forbid, our connection to God. We, we connect, every Jew is connected to the Ebishter, every human being is connected. It's to expedite the process and help us connect. would be like someone saying, what do I need a teacher for? I can learn Tater myself. The Tater was given, it's everyone's birthright, everyone's inheritance. Why do I need a teacher? Why is that a ludicrous question? Because we are, when we're children, we're young, not knowledgeable, and we need someone to teach us. Can there be a miracle and God download Tater in us? Yes, but that happens when we're nine months in our mother's womb. But then we're made to forget consciously, as the Alter Rebbe explains. Sub, the superconsciously, we retain everything we learned. But in this world, God wants everything to be in a natural way. That's why also we develop. We're not born 20 years old like Adam and Chava were created. We go through nine months of gestation and of pregnancy. Then you grow as a baby into it, into a Ben Because Dira Betachtainim, God wants a home in this world, and this world is structured, and there's a hierarchy. Not because the teacher is closer to God than you are. It's because the teacher has knowledge. When we stand up for someone that taught us Tera, are we standing up because this person is, is, is in any way special? It's because you're standing up for the Tera they carry, which is God's Tera. You're honoring Tera. You stand up for a safe and Tera, not because the, the parchment has some, the parchment is, is now a keli for God's wisdom. So it's a holy object. So in that sense, we need teachers because the teacher guides us. Could you do it on your own? First of all, it would take much longer. You'd make many mistakes. But more importantly, that's what we have. Shinantim Levanecha. Teach the children. Educate. Inspire. Role model. Can a child on its own without any role model figure it out? Yeah, but there are many pitfalls. And as I said, it can be a very, very difficult road. So God blessed us with teachers, with leaders. Why didn't Hashem take the Jews out of Mitzrayim directly himself? He couldn't take the Jews out of Mitzrayim. He couldn't give them the Torah without a Moshe Rabbeinu. But he wanted a human being that was impl- who had worked hard, completely refined himself, completely bottled, honor of Adam, the most humble person, to be a living example of what godliness is in this world. Because that's the whole point. Avram Yitzhak Yankov were they're like a Markova, a chariot, as Chassidus Tanya explains, 24-7, completely dedicated to what God wants. That's a living example for us what the standard is, what the expectation is. So what Kedach's mistake was, yes, he's right, everybody is holy. But you need the leaders, the leaders to teach us, to give us the shortcuts, if you wish, to be the role models, to be able to get out of our own subjectivity. Kedach made the mistake, because then right after that, he says he wants to be a leader. How does that fit? Because there was an ego here, and he saw... Adam, uh, um, sorry, Moshe Nan, in his, through his own eyes, that they're now the ego people. That he did not have the humility that was necessary, so he thought they also didn't have the humility. But a true leader is all about humility. It's not about, Moshe Kibbal Torah is Sinai, says, the Rebbe explains, what do you mean he received the Torah from Sinai? He received it from God. Because Sinai was a mountain, but it was the lowest, Machich Mokal Tadai, it was the lowest mountain to symbolize again, to be a proper to receive, you have to be, you have to be, have bitl, completely empty yourself, clay reikon, 
the student empties himself to absorb God's wisdom. And that's what Moshe and Adon had. So the leader is not about a leader, oh, the leader is a stronger person. The mitzvah is minei melech from the Terech Mitzvah Secha. So Mitzvah explains this, a mimer from the Alter Rebbe, why Shmuel first rejected the request of the Jews for a king. There's a posuk, sum tosim alecha melech, appoint a king. So the Jews said, we want a king. But they insisted. So Shmuel goes to God. Why did Shmuel reject it? It's a mitzvah. Because they didn't want a king for the, what it says. The tater is a the tater, the, the, the mitzvah of having a, appointing a king in the Tehidah is to have someone that's bottle, completely committed to godliness so he can be a leader. Not because he's a great leader, because he has power and he has ego and he has wealth and he has many horses. It's because he's completely divine. A divine a Isha Lekim. A human being that lives up to godliness. He saw the Jews wanted it for a different reason, for nationalistic purposes. Like they wanted pride. They saw other countries have a king. Like, look at the kings over there. Today, there aren't really any kings. It's more symbolic. But the idea, it's not, nothing to do with godliness, with higher purpose. It's some symbol. It's usually symbolized by a lot of opulence and often corruption. So Shmuel sends that. So Hashem said, nevertheless, make them, let them have a king. Shaul was the first. But David epitomized kingship, as the Tzamech Tzedek explains in that Maimer, because he represented Bittl, the true king. Malchus, Leslamagamaklum. Malchus' kingship doesn't have anything of its own. It's only reflecting the higher divine energy. So the reason you need leaders is because you need that, because we all have egos. The Alter Rebbe, the fascinating response when he was arrested, he was asked questions, they interrogated him. So he answered them in writing. He wrote in Hebrew and then it translated, translated into Russian for the Tsar's ministers, for those that weren't interrogating him. So one of the questions, what do you need a Rebbe for? You're a Rebbe, what, is, what do you need a Rebbe for? A Kairach asked, and he answered that Alter Rebbe asked in a very Balabatish way, because every person has an ego. Every person is in the gay bedovery, subjective, has biases and prejudices. So a Rebbe serves as an objective role model and mentor to help a person get beyond their subjectivity. It's a simple explanation, but it carries within it, of course, much deeper meaning as we're talking about Moshe. Kairach lost sight of that. So the role of a Koyin is not to replace our relationship with God. It's to help expedite it, help access, help speed it up. Says the Alter Rebbe now in the Teda and Kairach. And that's why God said, use rods, because the rod represented what a leader is supposed to be. A rod is like a channel, a connector. Which rod will blossom? Which one will turn, bring fruit? That will be the one that represents my channel that connects me with the, with, with, the, with the people, that helps them grow and blossom. And why almonds? Because almonds is the fastest growing fruit. It takes 21 days from the moment it sprouts till, till, it, till it blossoms into almonds. 21 days. Ad mehedi yodetz dvori. It's not just that God's blessing reach us and God's connection reaches us, but it should be speedy. But Rebbe explains it at length why we, every day we ask in davening for our needs. Isn't Rosh Hashanah the day when it's designated for the entire year? So he explains Rosh Hashanah designates it for the entire year, but every day we ask that it makes sure that it's internalized, relevant to us. Because you could have a blessing, and maybe not every day will be the way that blessing will be fulfilled. It may not come speedily. It may come in the wrong place. For example, you can pray for rain, but the rain falls at the wrong time. 
So every day takes the blessing, so-called the general blessing of Rosh Hashanah and channels it properly. That's what the Koyin does. That's what a leader does. In the language of Chassidus, why do you need Atzilus Bri Yitzira? The Rebishter wants the Savakaj Baruch Liyaslez Baruch Dira Betachten. He desires a home in this lowest of worlds. So why do you need to have a um, whole Seder Shtalsus? Because the Seder Shtalsus is Begiluyim. It reveals the divine intentions. If you just had a lowest world like ours, it'd be a world without direction, without guidance. A world without teachers. So Seder Shtalsus serves the role of giving us an example. What is Chesed really supposed to be like? So you look in the Chesed of Asiya. Then you climb to Chesed of Yitzira, then Chesed of Bria, Chesed of Atzilus. It gives you an example of what is true divine love look like. You want to use your mind. If you didn't have a Torah, if you didn't have Chachma, of Atzilus, Bria, Yitzira, we wouldn't be able to connect with God's mind. So Seder also serves not in any way replaces the Yesha Gashmi, comes from the Yesha Miti, Yesha Nivra. And here's where God wants a deity, He wants a home. But how do you make a home? He wants a home means also that it's revealed. And all those revelations come from the higher levels. So even though the Kavona is the lowest level, where there's no Giluim, no revelations at all, as the Alter Rebbe explains in chapter 36 in Tanya, but now you want, to, you want to grow. It's like, now how do you grow? Just like you need teachers to guide, to mentor. So we have all these higher levels that help us get to that place. And that's why the rod that blossomed and almonds to, that show the, speed, to, the speedy process, Dafka Aaron was the one that was fitting. That's what God demonstrated with that sign. Someone else writes, can we learn anything from this story about nepotism? Did Kairach's argument against Moses appointing his brother as Kohen Godel have a greater lesson to teach us to be fair and avoid nepotism? Well, you could derive it from the question, but the answer was that it wasn't nepotism. Even though Aaron was Moshe's brother, but it was God that chose Aaron, not Moshe. That's the key difference. Can you learn lessons that we have to be careful? Of course you can learn lessons. Was Kairach talking about that nepotism? Listen, his time was also to, to Moshe, not just to Aaron. But... Yes, you could derive it in a, in a certain way. It's a very powerful sikha from the Rebbe. I think it's Kedach Tavshinun Aleph, if I remember correctly. It may not be, maybe Tavshinun. I think it's Tavshinun Aleph, where he says that the Rambam writes, the end of Hilcha Shmita V'yevel, that Lei Shevet Levi Bolvad, not just Shevet Levi alone, but anyone that dedicates their life to godliness becomes sanctified with the Kedush Kedoshim, the Holy of Holies. And he brings the Ani Chalka Verses from Kairach. Verses where Kairach is using to, to argue against Meshavan. And that's what the Rambam brings. The Rambam says that everyone can be, not just Sheva Levi. So it seems like, one second, was Kairach right or wrong? Kairach said also everyone can be. The answer is Kairach spoke from more of an ego place. Even though he was a Pikach who was smart and he was a great man in many ways. The Rambam is speaking in a bittel dicker way, that once you have the bittel to Shevet Levi, to Moshe and Aaron, then everybody in their own way can also access that level. Not quite the level of being a Koyan or a Koyan Godel or a Moshe Rabbeinu, 
but they can become part of it. Like what the Alter Rebbe says in Tanya, we all have a Moshe within us. Okay, one more thing to add. So if Kedach's argument was essentially that all souls come from the same spiritual source, and therefore we are all equal and anyone could qualify to be a high priest, which seems like a valid argument, so where did Kedach go wrong? So answer that question. He went wrong because he saw the leadership as something he wanted. He, didn't just, he wasn't just arguing for the everybody's equal. That's one problem. The second thing with Kedach's problem, the second problem was that the way you reach a level and reveal all the soul's connection is that's what you need leaders for. Not to replace, but to reveal. And finally, Chassidus and Kabbalah speak about that Kedach saw the future. In the future, he saw the Milo of Gvuris over Chassadim, the Milo of Alevi over Akoyim. So therefore, he was seen, but it was not yet the time. So he did see something. It's like he's saying, it says that in the cave to save of Gover that you'll have, that the, that the Makabal will become like a Mashpia. But today, that's not the case. So Kedach was talking then, that would be the case. To say that the Yesha Nivra is connected to Atzmus, which Chassidus says, but only after you go through all the Seder Shtausas and reveal and do all the Aveda, then Asad Love in the future will be revealed this deeper connection. One more person writes, and Pastor Kedach relates the strange incident where Aaron swung the wooden staff and Amon shot out like a cannon. Was there significance to this, or was Aaron doing magic tricks at a birthday party? And also, in case today someone can replicate this, would almonds produced via magic be kosher to eat, and would they have the same bracha as regular almonds that grow naturally? That grew naturally. So first of all, as I explained it, that's so, this is a little more cynical, tongue-in-cheek. Um, the miracle was that God made it happen, but the fact that almonds grow in 21 days, that's a, that's a fact. Can Hypothetically, I'm sure some of us from talk can you use almonds that are created magically. There's discussions whether you can use something that came through Derechnes, whether you can use it for a mitzvah and so on. But that's another discussion It's not for here. And making a bracha on it, if it's an actual almond, the answer would be most likely yes. But there may be those that talk about food that is produced in it. Like they make a bracha, they made a bracha on the man. That also came from a miracle. They made a bracha. The Rameh writes. So based on that, you probably made a bracha. Okay. So now we've covered that. Let's go. And, okay. So there's a timely question. What should be our attitude to the new coalition government in Israel? So this is not a platform for politics. It's a platform for chassidus, chassidus applied. But since the Rebbe did speak about these matters, so I'll present it from the perspective of the Rebbe. We all know by the Rebbe the most important thing in Eretz Yisrael was a few things. First of all, everything should be come out of strength. That the shtar, the pikuach nefesh, which is the laws in, in Hilchah Shinchov, Simen Shinchov Tes, in Hilchah Shabbos, to be strong and not to give up territory and land, especially land that was miraculously won in a defensive war. So by the Rebbe, a government that represented that was worth supporting. It wasn't, didn't, didn't matter the name of the leader. So if this new coalition has that type of strength, by all means. The Rebbe, on the other hand, did give Bibi Netanyahu, who's the prime minister they're trying to oust, that bracha, we have it all on video, that even if 119 people in the 120-seat Knesset stand against you, stand strong and prevail. The positions of this position. A few other things that I've also focused on, I'll mention in a moment. 
But this is most relevant, especially in dealing with Arab enemies, as we see constantly attacking. There's a state of war. So the Rebbe did give him that statement. But to say that no one else can do that, I wouldn't say that. So I'm not telling, you to, telling us anyone to support this, especially maybe coming for very political reasons that have nothing to do with policies. Their hatred for Bibi, and not necessarily because they are going to be stronger in this position. So that needs to be measured. But I'm saying from the Rebbe's point of view, what mattered was, was that type of strong position. For that reason, the Rebbe was not always encouraged to have a, a not a big coalition, because then you have to compromise with too many parties. You have less, you have a majority, but it's not a major majority. It makes it easier to make decisions. So firstly, we still have to see what's going to happen here. And secondly, that's the Evan Abeich. If they have that strength, and even more than Bibi Netanyahu, then we'll bless them. Now, of course, we all know that the issues may be far more connected to politics and other issues that have nothing to do with these type of positions. The Rebbe, of course, was also strong with me, Yehudi. Make sure it's Bahalokha. And in general, a government that would support and help Yiddishkeit grow in Israel. But it's interestingly, the focus was always on these matters of security. That was the biggest things the Rebbe expected. Because some of the parties are not religious parties. The religious parties the Rebbe expected to stand up for Allah. He wanted all of them to, but the expectation was especially those that are advocating Taylor principles. So the bottom line is more complicated than just a few matters, especially, as I said, considering the political environment there, which has very little to do with policy, has to do with much more personal matters. And that's why, it's, even though I did say the key thing is to remember the security of Israel, it also, you know, you're not naive, I understand where it's coming from, and, uh, and it's part of political fight. But I don't want to get into the politics of it. This isn't about whether you support one individual or the other, it's more supporting a policy. And the policy that, that's most relevant to us is the one that I just mentioned, the security. And um, you know, on a personal note, I'll say the fact is Bibi Netanyahu has been, even on a ground level, very good for Israel, security-wise. The lowering of terrorist attacks, technology, economy, putting Israel on the map as a global player, the peace accords with uh, some of the Arab countries. So, not really sure why... why there's a such opposition to him, but it could be personal. As I said, there's people aren't, there are a lot of egos involved, there's power and control. I, as I said, I really didn't want to go there because it's not the focus of this program. That can be discussed in another platform, but I just wanted to mention it for the record. No person is indispensable and no person is perfect. So I'm not suggesting a perfection here. And I don't believe in that type of uh, radical loyalty to any individual. There's one God. You want to make sure that the leaders are trying to follow what God wants, especially in Israel, which is so close and dear to us. Okay. Now, let's move on. The question that was asked, which really is relevant any time, but especially when tragedy strikes, and we've had, unfortunately, we shouldn't hear about it anymore, in Iran, we had other effects, we had people, the latest attacks in Israel. So this is a question that came in during this period, which uh, I didn't have an opportunity to address. I will address it now. It says Rabbi Akiva laughed when he saw the ruins of the Beis Hamikdash because he knew ultimately it would be rebuilt. 
So yes, at the end of Mesech Tamakas, there's a famous story where they were, Rabbi Akiva and his colleagues were watching, looking at the Har Habayis. After the destruction, his colleagues were crying because they saw Shu'olim Helchimbe, they saw fox running out of what was once the Holy of Holies. The desecration, the, the desolation of this Holy of Holies, the holiest place on earth. And Rabbi Akiva smiled, laughed. So when they explain themselves, why are you crying? Because they say the fulfillment of the, sad, the tragic prophecies. And Rabbi Akiva said, if you continue reading, it's also the fulfillment that once that will happen, it will lead to the Beis HaMikdash Ashlish, it will lead to a rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. So Rabbi Akiva laughed. And when then they, they heard that, they said, Akiva Nechamtoni, Akiva Nechamtoni, Akiva, you have consoled us twice. Twice consoled, Nachmu, Nachmu. Because they heard that. So, of course, a lot can be learned in that story, that Rabbi Akiva had the bigger vision. Now, Rabbi Akiva I definitely sat Shiva and Tisha He didn't sit and laugh, because when there's sadness, you have to recognize that. But Rabbi Akiva, in context, also saw the bigger picture. One of the explanations is because Rabbi Akiva came from darkness. He was a Ben Gedim, or he was a Ger himself. Till 40 years, he didn't, he was a convert, or a child of converts. Till 40 years old, he never learned Teda. So he appreciated what darkness can bring to him. One of the explanations. The other Tanoim did not see that quite so clearly until they heard it from him. When they heard it from him, didn't they, they say didn't just, he didn't just console them once, twice. Like Nachemu, transformation is not just for the, tra- the tragedy is consoled. You twice consoled, so it's even stronger than the darkness. The light is stronger than the dark. So the question is asked, is it therefore acceptable for us to laugh when tragedy befalls the community? Because we know it's God's will and everything God does is for a good reason. The answer is obviously no. No, it's not appropriate. Rabbi Akiva's lesson to us is to recognize that even when there's a tragedy, and we recognize the tragedy, and we cry over it, Rabbi Akiva would not go tell Aaron after his children were died, not even that you know what? Every tragedy leads to, to Simcha. At that time, you need to cry. Then in context, long term, obviously there's something. And laughter is not frivolous laughter here. We're talking about recognizing a deeper story, a deeper narrative. So therefore, it's not no. Even when you say that everything is God's will, and ain't ra min and evil doesn't come, our call... And all the good things that are connected to even negative things, everything has its time. As I said, even Tzadikim, the Rebbe sat Shiva when the Rebbe passed away, and he shed a tear, more than one. And that's not a contradiction to this, because then there's another story, what it ultimately leads to. But the Teda tells us that right now it's sad, it's a concealment. It's a divine concealment. That's why Moshe became pale and became trembled when he saw Tumas Mess, as we'll read next week's Pasha, because as much as he understood that God can purify anything, but Mete there's a disconnect. As soon as you see a disconnect, even for one second, godliness is nitzchi, is eternal. So as soon as you see a disconnect, you don't see the eternity of God. In life, in eternal life, it's like the tzimtzum. The tzimtzum on its own is a concealment. Is its purpose to reveal? Yes. But everything in its time and its stage. So 
So we have to put things into context. Remember, the Gemara also tells us that the others did not laugh. What they, were, they did not know that the tragedy leads to good things. So it could very well be the Gemara is telling because there is that stage. And Rabbi Akiva saw deeper than they did. But they were also what they were not, they did not know that every Yerida brings an Aliyah. They didn't know the end of the verse and the Nevoah. But they were consumed with the negative part because that's what affected them. And Rabbi Akiva was able to put it into broader context. Another question which relates to this, if you cry when a tragedy happens, does it reflect a lack of faith in God? Same reason, absolutely not. Because that's how God created us, that we cry when there's sadness. And we should cry. It's a gift that God gave us, an outlet. And it would be achzarius, Halacha says. If a person decides, you know what, everything God does great, I don't need to sit, no one should ever know of this, I don't need to sit shiva. Everything God does is great, I could just go on with my life. No, that's considered insensitive. Someone says, I want to sit more than Shiva. That's also insensitive. So, it's, so there's a certain amount of time you need to mourn and grieve, and there's a time when you have to move on and grow from it. Not forget, but grow from it. Perhaps if you had true faith on the highest level, someone writes, we would laugh or smile because we know everything is part of God's plan. So as I explained, no, that's not the case. Now, it seems like a contradiction, right? On one hand, you believe there's a higher God's plan, so why not laugh? Because as I said, both are necessary. Chassidus says, tzimtzum is necessary in order to bring gilui. But the tzimtzum itself is hepecharotzen. That's the Kloshen Chassidus. The tzimtzum itself is only in order to bring gilui, not because it itself has, some, has, has a value. Yes, it's the power of God within it, and that will also be revealed. But tzimtzum b'shvila gilui. So to start saying the concealment itself, because of Golas, and even the Holocaust, will all bring to great things that we don't cry. No, we cry for what was lost. We cry why it had to happen that way. Why couldn't it happen a different way? And that's part of the process. Do some people cry because they're just weak and they cry? That's also part of it. Also part of human condition. But even great people have cried, and do cry and should cry. And at the same time, they know there's a deeper plan. So that is a consolation, but doesn't contradict one or the other. And this is the way we work. This is how human beings work. We have different feelings, different situations, and different matzavim. Okay. Since we've been doing Mashiach talk in the last few uh, months, we began, I mean, we do it all the time. I can't tell you how many episodes have been dedicated to Mashiach and Mashiach-related questions. But especially since 30 years from Chavches Nissen. So that was three months ago, Nissen Ir Sivan. Uh, actually, two months ago, sorry, Chavches Nissen to Ir is one month, and the, to Sivan is two months. So there's still questions that came in over the time, and let me just address a few more. So someone writes that the Rambam writes at the end of Hilchas Malachim, chapter 12. All these and similar matters cannot be definitely known by man, that's the Rambam's words, I'm translating, until they occur. For these matters are undefined in the prophets' words, and even the wise men have no, have no established tradition regarding these matters except their own interpretation of the verses. Therefore, there's a controversy among them regarding these matters. Basically, talking about many different issues. There, the Rambam talks about Eliyahu Novi coming before Mashiach to announce it. And there are many Madrashim and Maimar Chazal that talk about Mashiach. So the Rambam is addressing them all, that many of them we don't, definitely do not know exactly how it's going to happen. 
So Rambam then continues, regardless of the debate concerning these questions, neither the order of the occurrence of these events or their precise detail are among the fundamental principles of faith, of Jewish faith. They're not ikri adas, as he says. A person should not therefore occupy himself with our goddess and homiletics concerning these and similar matters, nor should he consider them as essentials, for study of them will, ne- will neither bring fear or love of God. So the, all the different details about Mashiach's coming, though that are shrouded in either controversy or, more importantly, disagreements, or uh, so on, that's what he says, because it's not foundations in Amuna. Similarly, one should try not to try not try to determine the appointed time for Mashiach's coming. Our sages declared, may the spirits of those who attempt to determine the time of Mashiach's coming expire. Rather, one should await and believe in the general concept of the matter as explained. So Solomon writes a question. If that's the case, how then could the Rebbe say that learning about Mashiach would bring him closer? So this question has been asked many times. But if you look closely, the Rebbe never contradicts the Rambam. The foundation that one has to believe in Mashiach, and await is Mashiach actively. The Rambam himself says, if someone does that, they're basically defying a foundation in Amunah. The Rambam says that earlier. It's one of the Yud Gimel Ikrim, one of the founding principles, the principles of Jewish faith. But the details, whether Tchis HaMesim is going to happen exactly like this, or what, what, what exactly is going to happen in this detail, you can learn it, but you can't come to conclusions. And that is not part of the Ikramun. That's what the Rambam says. The Rebbe also never gave a date. He said it's going to happen in our generation. We finished the Bidurim. And more importantly, it wasn't a Ketz. Like, like in the earlier generations, you could say a date was designated. And that's already also been discussed. How does that consistent with the Rambam when you see that Rambam himself gave a Ketz and so did others? So that's another discussion, how that's reconciled. But the Rebbe, the Rebbe said something much stronger, actually. He said, we're already at the end of the process. The Birurim are finished. Not a ketz that this is an opportune time. This is it. Why Daka didn't happen, the Rebbe says, I have a question. Clearly something has to be still done to open our eyes, etc. But the idea of learning about Gula Mashiach is actually learning the concept of Gula Mashiach. Including the details. You can learn about the laws of Beis Amikdash, the Medrashim, the Rambam doesn't say not to learn about it. He says it shouldn't occupy himself trying to understand every contradiction and so on. So to know it, you can learn it. The main thing is to understand that the main thing is the kavon of the Iker Adas is not the details of our goddess. It's about preparing ourselves to the Gili of Elikus that will be the divine will be present. It will be a world where instead of occupying ourselves with materialism, Loi Esik, in the words of the Ramam, the entire business of the world will be nothing but to know only to know God. In addition, I would say that maybe you can answer, you could also explain that learning the details in the Godas and the Medrashim means part of Teirah. The Rambam didn't say avoid learning it. It's clear that he really wants to say is that don't get yourself confused with it because there's so many different aspects he won't be able to come into conclusive elements. So that sounds much more of what he's trying to say. In the language in the Hebrew, he says like this, which means to delve ourselves in the Asik and 
to elaborate on it because there's a lot of different contradictions and a lot of details we don't know how they're going to be. And when you get a consumer of that, which people have done, you know, get consumed with some of the details, and you forget the big picture, which is the key thing to remember in this context. Okay. Good. That's one question. Another question regarding this. What's the difference between the footsteps of Mashiach and the birth pangs of Mashiach? In Hebrew, Ikvasid the Mashiach means the footsteps, Eker the footsteps. Chavli Mashiach is the birth pangs. It's quite clear. The footsteps means that it's right, we're at the end of Golis, and what the literally footsteps means that the footsteps of Mashiach are coming our way. But the truth is, Ikvasid the Mashiach actually means the end of Golis, Ekev, just like in a body. There's a head and there's the akiv is the is this is the heel. The heel is the end of the process. So ikfasid the mashik is a term used in Chazal and Musahta Saita and other places that's referring to the end of the process. In Kabbalah it talks about history like in the structure of a human body. So the head would be the time of Adamarishana, the beginning of time. The the later lower parts would be uh, the, the mind, then moving to emotions. And the end of uh, end of Aveda is going to be Mesiris Nefesh with the heel, because we don't have a lot of Giluyim today. The time of the Beis Hamikdash was more like the Midas. Time of Moshe and earlier is more like the Moichin, all the way to the Reish of Adamarish. Ikvus of the Mashiach is the Akiv doesn't have has the least amount of energy, and it's also the bottom part of the leg of the body that walks on the ground. And it says in Chsidis, when you want to go into a hot bathtub, a hot tub, a hot water. You put your toe in first. You put in the heel first, rather, the akiv. Because the akiv is less sensitive, and then before you put the rest of the body on your head into it. So refers to a generation that is devoid of many revelations, but it has mesiris nefesh. The akiv is mesiris nefesh. It's the part that carries the whole body, and it can lift the entire body. So that's ikvus in the Mashiach. There's more to be said on that as well. So akiv in the context of more, more concealment. Chavle is a different meaning altogether. The birth pangs. The birth pangs that come before a birth, just like the birth pangs of Mitzrayim, Golis Mitzrayim, that brought the birthing of the Jewish people, Goy Meketev Goy, out of that came out of Egypt. So we also have the birth pangs. But to make it very clear, that Rebbe said many times that we've already gone through the birth pangs, including, of course, World War II and the Holocaust and all that came before the all the tzaddis. So the, we've done the birth pangs. Now it's just a matter of the birthing itself. So that's the key difference. Okay. Um, now, let me see what else do we cover. Okay, let me go to another question. So, it's a completely unrelated question, but let's address it. Hi, Rabbi Jacobson. Firstly, I want to say I'm, that I'm enjoying listening to your weekly sessions on so many important topics, and it's taught me so much. I respect your opinion, so I turn to you with this very urgent issue. I just hired a, li- a live in a live-in nanny from Jamaica, who unbeknown to me is a very religious Catholic and goes to church, etc. She has a Bible and she reads in the room that she reads in the room she stays in by us. 
I respect the fact that she's religious and has good morals and values, but the issue is she's been singing songs to my baby, and I've heard the word Jesus in it. In it, she talks to me about the Lord and how Ish and how Yoshka saved her, etc., and she tells me about her faith. I've told that we are religious Jews and we have our own set of laws, etc., and that everything our children here need to be kosher from a Jewish source, and she can refrain from singing songs from the church, etc. She told me she was very hurt when I said that because it's very important to her. Eventually, she did hear what I have to say and said she'll try to be cautious, but it's just so embedded in her that she can't help herself. How can I explain it to her in a respectful way where she understands how much this means to us? I also want to get rid of her. I also want to get rid of her, but I really need the help. I can't manage without her help, but I feel like this can be harmful to my babies and the shamas. I would really appreciate your advice. Thank you in advance. Okay, well, it's a very uh, good question, excellent question. So, of course, this type of situations, it's case by case what you can actually accomplish. No, you don't want her communicating in any way with your children about her beliefs and religious beliefs. The best way to explain it in a respectful way is very straightforward. Um, you said it already, but I would just repeat it and I'll just maybe elaborate a bit more. The Jewish people received the Torah at Sinai from Moses and have their set of beliefs. The fact that over a thousand years later Christianity was born and it was a religious Jew, actually, that people, they attribute their beginnings from. But we are Jews. We're not Christians. And the values we have in the Bible are very dear to us and very precious. So as much as it's embedded in her, it's also embedded in us. Since she has working with, with children, this is not about her children, it's about your children. Now, it's, it may be impossible to really convey this to her because precisely because of her religious beliefs. So you may have no choice. But if she has a certain intelligence and sensitivity, and you could say to her, let me share with you some things. If you want to speak about God, speak about God. Don't speak about anything else. Speak how God created us and how God has given us each a mission in life. And if you can educate her, so to speak, in the Sheva Mitzvahs and speak in that type of language, again, I don't know if it's possible because it may just be impossible for her to do it so embedded, as you said, as she says, but at least an attempt to be made. And if that doesn't work, then I would suggest finding another nanny, not because she's a bad person. As a matter of fact, the Balshemtov, and we believe that someone who's religious in their Christian faith is someone we respect. The Balshemtov wouldn't want to ride in a wagon with someone who did not cross themselves, because faith, that a Balshemtov was better than someone that's an atheist. It's a discussion, not from right now, but that doesn't mean we have to expose our children to the, such a nanny, especially impressionable children. So it may not be possible, but this may be an opportunity for you to explain to her how we do believe in God, and not in a compet competitive way, what God means, and without focusing on any, in, any intermediaries, God in the purest form, as Avram Avinu taught the world, and as uh, we learn in the Yiddishkeit, and that's what it comes down to, one God that gave us laws of how to live up to God's expectations of us without any other diluting that. Now, some intelligent people can pick that up and separate. That's what you're going to have to determine based on that.
That would be my response to that question. Now, another question. Reason for Jews being considered the most intelligent demographic. According to all data, Jews are considered to be the most intelligent demographic, be it IQ, scientific prizes, income, innovation, etc. What is the reason for that? Was it always the case or is it a result of natural selection? Meaning that throughout the exile, only the smartest survived, and that is why Jews today are smarter than the general population per capita. So it depends who you ask. If you ask secular scientists, some will say, because Jews had to survive, so they became very resilient and very innovative and ingenious and ingenuity to be able to figure out ways to survive. So that they evolved into a smarter people. If you ask the Torah, it says, that your wisdom and understanding will be appreciated by all the nations because you are a chosen people that God created in a way that you have an additional resources. So it all depends who you ask. I don't like to focus on this because for another reason. You find non-Jews that might be smarter than some Jews. It's not always a rule. And vice versa, of course. So the point being is that it's, I don't know if we have to go around saying we're all smarter and so on. It's, I know it's used very often to show how many Nobel Prizes and Jews. But the point here is not to pull rank or try to in any way create jealousy or create discrimination. Um, I think it's more to focus on understanding, appreciating that a Jew, in a humble way, has to say, essentially declare through example, not through words, that by living up to what God wants of us, we are going to be a better people. So when a Jew does that, that's a Kiddush Hashem. So when you see a Jew's wisdom and a Jew's resilience and a Jew's ability to, to get through difficult times, and that becomes an example for other people, that is what our goal is. Like the Sefri says, that people should love God when they see you, you should make God beloved in their eyes by seeing you as a living example. That's how I would focus on this instead of turning it into something that is like pulling rank and who's superior and who's not. Okay. There's some follow-up, but let me see what our time is like here. Um, I'll do... There's really not much time for the follow-up, so you know what, I'll do that next week. I'm going to do, the Chassidus question was about the issue, which I already addressed, what does it mean that Matan didn't happen in the lower hemisphere? So I, so I addressed that earlier in the beginning, which means not in a revealed way, as the Tzermat Friedrich Rebbe writes to the Rebbe in a response to that. With that, let us just go straight to the essay contest. So we are reviewing the 25th place winners of the 6th Annual 2020 My Life Chassidus Applied Essay and Creative Contest. Four tracks, an essay in English, an essay in Hebrew by men, essay Hebrew women, and a creative track. So the essay in English is the one that we're reviewing now. It's Purposeful Living, Aaron Zev Marshall, age 19, student Kfar Chabad, hometown Melbourne, Australia. So this is exactly as the title suggests. Living with purpose and direction. Quoting Hedicta Frankel, the idea of meaning in life as being the most driving force. But a nice parallel between Frankel and Chassidus, which the Rebbe does suggest in certain letters. And the idea of living with, a, that with meaning and purpose, that you were sent here for a purpose, which is in a sense going to preempt many of the challenges we have. 
The essay in Hebrew men is Loving another, valuing yourself in context, in contrast to valuing another. Addressing the big issue of our times, that people are so focused on self-interest and self-preservation, how does obviously Saul fit into that? And bringing from Tanya and other places of Chassidus, that key role, which today especially is so vital when people are so focused on themselves. This is Yosef Rubenfeld, Jerusalem, Israel. The essay in Hebrew women, Eich nismoded im machshaves How do you deal with negative thoughts? Mrs. Ricky Glukowski, educated in Chavot, Israel, and in a very beautiful way, puts it into like, you this? That is bullet points, actually, that sum up what Chassidus says, that as soon as you have a negative thought, you have the ability to stop it in its tracks. To know any negative thought comes from something outside of you. That's point two. To identify the root of the problem, which is the animal soul trying to capture and control you. The need for iskafia, self-control. And finally, ishapcha, to transform your thoughts from the negative into the positive. Very beautiful essay. And finally, the creative essay, Diving Through Dimensions. It's a lesson plan by Mushka Heidingsfeld, age 18, student of Hanag High School, LA, hometown Santa Monica, California. She uses through a lesson plan for students using the, the production of chocolate, how chocolate is manufactured as an ex- example to explain the evolution of the worlds from one state to another. Also, well, very well done. So the English and the creative can be seen at chassidusapply.com. The Hebrew ones is at diralay.org, D-I-R-A-L-O.org. And in general, chassidusapply.com is a repository of all the archives of previous episodes. There's a forum there where you could ask all your questions. There's all the essays from the previous years and plenty of other resources, including if you'd like to join us in the Ayim Bay's daily class that I teach in Hemshech Ayim Bay's, or other resources of other Maimarim, Hemshech Samagvav, Hemshech Sadik Dalad, you can find it all at chsidisupply.com. With that, my friends, let's conclude this episode 357 of My Life Chsidis Applied, which uh, especially focused on Chav Chesivin, which will be this week 80 years. May we use that day and the continuation of that day into Gimel Tamas and further to intensify and increase in our activities in transforming the material world of which now has actually become, in a way, affecting more the other parts of the hemisphere. Once upon a time, that hemisphere conquered this one. Now this hemisphere can conquer that one. That the materialism of this world and the apathy should be transformed and lift it up and ultimately bring the Gula Mitis Vashlem and Dizder Hashvi. Everyone be well. Have a very healthy and good week. This program is brought to you by My Life, Hasidus Applied. Please help us continue our programs. Make even a small contribution at hasidusapplied.com slash donate.